Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 2nd of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you might balk at the idea that Ireland is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. That is because most people in this country don't possess such wealth. The top 20% of the population earns five times higher than the bottom 20%. We live in a tax haven where huge multinationals generate massive profits but contribute little to society, paying little or nothing in taxes. It is a tale of two cities in many respects, while on one hand people struggle to make ends meet, choosing to eat or heat, and that's at today's prices before they skyrocket as we go into the winter once again. On the other hand, we have countless millionaires and some 17 billionaires uh, amongst our myths. How they spend their money is anyone's guess. But Oxfam says it is preposterous that the super rich continue to prioritise convenience and indulgence over investment in writing the wrong they've most contributed to. Let's speak uh, to Jim Clarkin, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer with Oxfam Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Jim, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. That's a very strong statement. Uh, good morning, Michael. Well, the, the statement is in relation to a, a, a pre-budget submission that we've, we've, we've put together, which speaks about a range of issues, uh, including the, the cost of living crisis, which, as you rightly said, is is affecting many people in Ireland in a very extreme way. But across the world, we have a climate and a hunger crisis too. So we see the impact of consumption and of of the kind of growing inequality that has worsened since the pandemic. You've seen the impact of the climate, the very real impact in places like Pakistan, in East Africa, where there's a huge food crisis right now. Mm. We have millions on the brink of starvation. 
and then you see the the cost of living crisis here at home for for ordinary people mm. and in the meantime there is there is a lot of wealth here and we're we're saying look it's fine that people you know are successful and they make money and they become wealthy but we do think that there's a disproportionate share that those people have of uh, the impact of on, on climate change in terms of their consumption and the way they the way they spend their money but okay and you're asking the an, government an opportunity sorry, I'm sorry. an opportunity to for them to contribute so we think that mm-hmm. what needs to happen the government could, should should be considering uh, a carefully designed wealth tax for people of those extreme wealth which we believe can bring in as much as 5 billion euro to help support That's the, the country here mm-hmm. and help to help to develop funds or have funds for both our climate responsibilities mm. and our international development responsibilities Man, as well as supporting people at home. Yeah. Yeah, that's an awful lot of money, Jim. Five billion euro. Um, I mean, if you consider uh, that the package, the overall package this year is going to amount to 6.7 billion. Uh, I think uh, 3 billion of that is already gobbled up, isn't it? Yeah, well, this is the thing. I think it's the wealth tax has, has not been something that has been really spoken about that much in Ireland. And we're you know, it is starting to be a conversation that's that's emerging, and we've talked about it. I was on your show actually mm. uh, around the Davos time, and you know the World Economic Forum, and these these ideas are starting to come out now because everybody or people are starting to recognise that there there are a group in society that are are extremely wealthy. Mm. They could contribute more, uh, and rather than upping taxes for ordinary people, which happens regularly, and obviously things like that. Are, are a tax that affects everybody, but particularly affects the poorest people. Mm. So we can find other ways to generate revenue. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the uh, welfare increases, everybody's saying it should be €20 euro to stand still. The government is saying that would cost €1.5 billion. Euro. We may be able to go €15, euro, that would be €1.3 I, I think, uh, but probably not because it is so expensive. €5 billion really is uh, an awful lot of money, and uh, that perhaps uh, indicates to people what the government could do with that €5 billion. As we're going into the winter, are looking at these huge increases in uh, prices, uh, perhaps something could be done to offset it because it is so much money. Uh, and you're talking about raising this five billion by taxing the very rich, those who have more than five million euro or fifty million euro. Yeah, and anything upwards of f- from five million. And I mean, it, you know, it has to be, you know, car- carefully designed, as I say. Uh, uh, but a modest tax between one and a half and two percent could generate as much as five billion. And we also want the government to consider windfall taxes. So there are companies and parts of certain sectors that have made extraordinary profits over these past two or three years. And it's only right that, and, and some of them are as a result of the pandemic. So uh, also the energy, we know the energy companies are making huge, huge uh, profits at the moment, but also mm. the, the pharmaceutical companies and some others. And it's only right that if they profited during the time of the pandemic, uh, way above and beyond normal profits, if you like, that they should be contributing more to to helping us to get out the other side of all of this. Okay, let's talk about the wealth tax first of all, uh, before that windfall tax. Uh, You're talking about 1.5% on wealth of 5 million and more. That would be €75,000. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's not a lot of money if you have five million. <laughs> you know, if you think about it. <laughs> well, I don't know if you ask somebody who had five million, would they uh, consider it a lot to pay in tax? They probably would say yes, and they probably would know a lot of important people uh, in decision making areas. But we have we have uh, PAYE workers who are you know middle income who are paying twenty thirty thousand a year on PAYE. So. Like it's and that's on modest enough incomes. Mm. So if you're talking about people who have revenue of over five million, then 
75 doesn't sound that much as a you know when you think about it as a percentage people are paying a lot more than one and a half to two percent mm. uh, as you know as we all are you know so we don't think it's it's unreasonable we don't think it'll create a flight of of which is often what's said about these things it create a flight of capital mm. there are loads of reasons why people want to live and be in Ireland Irish people and others because it's a, the quality of life but also because we as a country i.e. all of us have invested in the country to have the infrastructure that we have to have the system that we have to have the law and order and and education and all the good things that we do have here. So, mm. you know, it's only right that uh, everybody pays what would be their fair share. Okay, uh, I hope I have my figures right. Uh, you're saying 2% on over 50 million. That would be €750,000 in, in tax if I do have my figures right. And Would that be a tax that would be due every year? Uh, yeah, but I mean, the, the well, look, I, I think there's, there's devil in the detail and I think it, it needs to be worked through. But so what, what we're doing is we're just putting it out there for debate and discussion because we do think that the time is right for this. And other commentators are talking about it too. Mm. It, it has been something that has widely been avoided by governments traditionally, and we don't think that's right. And, you know, we can, we can discuss at what point it comes in and what the percentage might look like and in what way it'll be generated. Mm. But the fact that a, a wealth tax per se is not something that we've traditionally had there is an opportunity to generate a lot of very badly needed revenue to pay for cost of living, to pay for our international development commitments, to to help people who are struggling to invest in education and health and all the important things that we need. Okay. So it, it's an area that we think needs to be seriously considered. We need to have a debate about it and need to come up with a system that will work. But we okay. do believe it's there mm. and it can work. Uh, and we put it in the context, uh, if you like, of uh, the news from St. Vincent de Paul this week uh, that uh, they were getting 30 calls an hour from parents uh, who couldn't meet uh, the cost of returning to school for their children. Uh, but I think there's always this argument that wealth generates wealth or uh, generates wealth in the economy and that uh, it goes around the economy so that if uh, somebody is very wealthy then they can set up businesses and create jobs uh, those jobs uh, result in tax and revenue for the government and so on and uh, you seem to be of a, a different opinion looking at that statement from Oxfam today and that strong statement uh, that we opened the programme with uh, you say uh, that the super rich in this country prioritise convenience and indulgence over that type of investment well, I think that that specific part of the of the overall statement was in relation to climate. So we've identified that, that the very wealthiest in Ireland, as is the case across the world, are the largest contributors to climate, uh, to, to carbon. You know, they, 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 they spend or use more carbon than the rest of us. Mm. And I think that, that, so the point there was that people who are using private jets or have, you know, expensive carbon-fueled lifestyles, that that is a disproportionate and that's preposterous because it doesn't it isn't right. We see the likes of Pakistan, a third of the country underwater. Mm. The the entirety of Pakistan, one of the most populous countries in the world, ha- only contributes one percent to global to global carbon. A country like Ireland produces sixteen times per capita as much. You know so, mm. and, and we know that at the top of the of the um, economic spectrum within Ireland, there are people. You know, just they they spend more on on carbon fueled uh, activities. Mm. So that's what we mean in that instance. That, that Fair kind enough, of but, but, but are you suggesting you tax their wealth and then put a, a tax on their private jets as well? Well, look, I think I think it's, there are a number of things that need to happen. I mean, there's a there's a question about private jets and about the, 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 the usefulness and validity of them. But look, if people have that uh, capacity to own a private jet 
uh, I think it's you know it's only right that they pay that they contribute both from a tax point of view, but also you know if they're spending all that carbon. I mean the the amount of carbon that's burnt on a single private jet route compared to an airliner with 300 people in it, you know, is is crazy. So I mean, you know, mm. they do need to be. You know, we do need to look at how they can reverse that or how they can contribute better to that. So okay. there are a number of things here. I suppose they, the thing that we're really saying is that this, you know, inequality is growing. Mm. Um, we do have huge needs in Ireland and across the world. Uh, and we're seeing there there's a whole area of funds that really hasn't been considered very much. And we do believe that, that the time is now to, to seriously look at this and seriously look at how the wealthiest in society can, tri- can contribute more to ensuring that all of society is looked after. Okay, I mentioned uh, at the beginning that the top 20% of the population earns five times higher than the bottom 20% in this country. Uh, And you're making the point that uh, the top 10% of the Irish population by income levels emit nearly as much as the bottom 50% uh, when it comes uh, to carbon. Uh, And that comes down to these private jets uh, and the like. Uh, And you mentioned the problems that we're seeing every day on our our television. Well, we're not seeing them. uh, We're not seeing the Horn of Africa every day. We're probably seeing bits of Pakistan with people underwater, uh, somewhere buried in uh, the programmes. But there's a real, real problem uh, across uh, the three countries in the Horn of Africa, in Kenya, Ethiopia and Somalia, where 22 million people are facing starvation because the rains have failed for four years in a row and then you've got the opposite in Pakistan uh, but you were making uh, the point in your press release uh, that in the Horn of Africa uh, that their carbon emissions amount to just one, 0.1% of uh, the global uh, emissions Just in, the, in those, in those mm. combined three countries it's, it's incredible isn't it yeah. 0.1% of the entire global, global And they're emissions. starving because they're starving there's no right rain now. I mean we're, we're, we're seeing unprecedented we have, we've had four uh, failed rainy seasons in the Horn of Africa and we're facing into a fifth. We're at a catastrophic level of hunger. And I know people think that organisations like ours use this terminology a lot. We try not to because we we raise the flag when it really needs to be raised. What's happening in the Horn of Africa and we're, you know, we, we have huge programmes on the ground trying to support it and getting great support from the Irish public but it's uh, and across the world, but it is it is at a scale that we haven't seen before. And the you know, the, the, we, we're on the brink of, of famine and it's a word that, again, we rarely use because it has a very specific definition and, and when we use that word, we know that things have gotten to that catastrophic level and we're on the brink of that right now. And a huge part of that, not in its entirety, but a huge part of that is climate change hmm. driven. It's this constant droughts and it's the, the, you know, all of that cycle that has either created floods in Pakistan are huge droughts in in East Africa, and this is all to do with climate, and this is to do with, you know, the way that the way that we have developed as societies, and 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 so on. And we have a, a huge responsibility now to mm. to address in the short term the needs of people that are that are on the brink of of starvation. And don't death. the Irish people also, always live up to that responsibility? I mean, we must be one of the most charitable countries in the world, and we always uh, donate uh, individually uh, to charities and so on, and that's probably reflected in the views of government and what we uh, pay out in overseas development aid to help some of uh, the poorer countries in the world. And I'm sure many people listening to us this morning will remember 17 years ago, I think 
it was in 2005, the Taoiseach of the day, Bertie Ahern, was at the United Nations in New York and shocked the world, really, by saying that Ireland was committing to donating 0.7 of its GNP to overseas development aid by 2012. So we should have reached that target, which would have been uh, the highest in the world, I think, at the time, 10 years ago. But we still haven't managed to do it yet. Nowhere near it, uh, Michael. But I, I would say, first of all, to, to, to answer your original point, the Irish public are extraordinarily supportive and generous and really understand when there's a crisis that people need to be supported. And, and we're, we're so lucky that that, that is the, the mobilisation of Irish people and the empathy and, and understanding and generosity is, is extraordinary. And it was wonderful that the government all that time ago committed to that 0.7%. But truthfully, we're nowhere near it. We're at 0.32%. So part of, and, you know, and, and you know, it, it dropped, it has dropped below that, but it, we're, we're starting to come back, but we've a long way to go. And this is, this is a global commitment. Many other countries have reached it already. Many other countries have written it into legislation, in fact, and it's, it's a permanent part of their budgetary cycle. So we believe that it is, it is incumbent on Ireland as a wealthy country, and I know that not everybody feels that, but collectively or the, as, as a whole, it's a wealthy country to, to make its contribution. And we're saying that, the, the, the wealth tax, the, the windfall tax can help to contribute to international development as well as helping those here at home. Okay, as you said, Jim, this is all part of your pre-budget submission, which uh, we'll uh, hear the detail of on the 27th of September when uh, the government uh, makes its own announcements. But you're hoping that uh, as part of Budget 23, there will be money allocated, more money allocated, that is, uh, to people seeking refuge in this country. Uh, that's right. Well, we, we Ireland has responded so well, as we know, to the to the the, the war in Ukraine and to the the needs of people fleeing conflict in Ukraine. Um, and in recent years, we've been gradually improving because we did have a poor record. Being honest, uh, our our work with with others seeking international protection, um, but it does require funding and support, and we're seeing the the challenges that are there. So, look, it's it's something that the government, no doubt, are considering and it needs to be part of their overall overall package. So, look, we, we acknowledge there are lots of demands on, on government right now. It's, it's, a, it's a hard time, uh, but we do see that there are opportunities for government to, to focus this budget on making sure that, you know, the inequality that we see growing, that we re- reverse those huge gaps that we're seeing, mo- most importantly, protect those who are most vulnerable, both here in Ireland and making our contributions, our fair share of contributions internationally, and then looking to to find creative ways in which we can we can you know balance that better. Okay, Jim, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program this morning. Jim Clarkin is uh, the chief executive officer of Oxfam Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, all of the children are back in school at uh, this stage and they all look very well, don't they? But how are they feeling, I suppose, is a different day's work. Let's speak to Victoria Hosen, who is uh, the Community Engagement Manager with the ISPCC. Good morning to you, Victoria, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You're you're advising parents and teachers this week about how children may be feeling, and, and I suppose I suppose there's a a myriad of answers to that question. Good morning, Michael. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Um, Yeah, at ISPCC Childline, we get 
a lot of calls from young people and children and with our other programs such as our Smart Moves program which is a resilience based program for 5th and 6th class pupils um, transitioning from primary school into secondary school um, we get a lot of feedback from again children and young people on this and as you said it is a myriad of emotions um, some are feeling a little bit anxious um, some are feeling a bit worried or stressed others as well are feeling excited you know um, yeah. they're looking forward to this new chapter um, so as you said it's definitely a myriad of emotions Okay and worth checking in with uh, children because uh, may uh, all may not be what it seems I take it Exactly. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, if we look back onto our own days of moving from primary school into secondary school, um, that can be a big change in our lives. We're already going through a lot of changes at that age, you know, moving from um, middle childhood on to adolescence. Um, and you also have as well, you know, even if you're not moving from primary school into secondary school, going back to school after the summer holidays is a big change in itself. Um, so like I said, with things like feeling kind of anxious, maybe mm. worried, feeling a little bit stressed it's always really good to just check in and to see not only how our young people are feeling um, how ourselves are feeling as parents and caregivers and even you know modeling that for our children and young people of it's okay to check in and see how we're feeling with big Mm. changes like this okay and children would call childline because they're anxious about school would they they would call because they're anxious about school but also sometimes they call because they want to share this new change that they actually would like to phone our childline service because they just want to talk about um, you know maybe the fact that they had a good day in school that um, they had a lot of information to take in mm. um, so it's a mixture of course really? we do get the phone calls of anxiety worry and stress and, and you know um, what can I do what should I be doing etc mm. but we also do get children um, who just as I said want to talk just want to share what happened in their day um, yeah uh, and that's, again, with Childline, we're here for every child for whatever okay. the reason. All right, I, I didn't know that. Is that a relatively new thing? I mean, it, it sounds like uh, they're treating Childline as a familiar voice, a, a friend that they can chat with. Uh, I, I, I didn't know uh, that Childline was perceived uh, as a service like that. Definitely. I think it's one of those things that's very important when we're talking about well-being and when we're talking about resilience. It's not always just because we're already feeling maybe down or we're already feeling kind of anxious. It's sometimes just about making sure we have somebody there to listen to us and so that we can be heard. And that's again when we're feeling down but also when we're feeling good when we want to share something about ourselves and you know when we just want to know that our, if we say something someone's yeah. there to listen Okay, alright uh, but uh, I take it uh, that at other times uh, you're hearing concerns uh, and that children have a, a lot on their minds uh, when they are worried or anxious about school what is it that they're saying to you? I think especially with the programme that I'm working with, our Smart Moves programme, a lot of young people, um, it's that transition from primary school into secondary school, or even, as I said, that transition from summer holidays back into school. It's the unknown. Mm. And when we're talking about anxiety, a lot of the times we're talking about unknown. I don't know, you know, who I'm going to meet in this new class. I don't know who my teacher is going to be. Um, I don't know what the workload is going Mm. to be like. And I think we at ISPCC know how important it is to help young people um, build their resilience by letting them 
in on, I suppose, the, the tips and skills of what is the known. Yeah. You know, helping them feel prepared in um, homework plans, in um, making sure they have a journal to write down all the new information that they're going to be getting, uh, making sure parents and caregivers are aware as well of some of the feelings and emotions that are going to be going through the young people at this time of year. Um, so again, it's that kind of trying to make them feel as prepared as possible um, when they're going in for this big new transition. Yeah. I'm sure it's easier to go from sixth class to first year with all of your friends from sixth class than go to first year and not know anybody at all. Exactly. I mean, even now with our Smart Moves programme, we have 14 schools taking part from Laos, 10 schools taking part from Meath. And last year, we had amazing um, feedback from children and the teachers themselves about our Smart Moves programme. But one of the biggest things that struck me was how many young people were really afraid of saying goodbye to old friends and, you know, trying to make new ones. Um, So it's one of the reasons why we have a whole lesson plan focused on support and friendship about who, how do we, you know, make new friends how do we look for support in this new environment because when you think about it some students are going from a very small class to a bigger class depending on the area and that's very overwhelming and so again it's why it's such an important factor to think about yeah well uh, to a large degree I think uh, your friends are your life they are your world uh, when uh, you're a young child like that Uh, but you're also hearing Uh, about other issues uh, and problems with people who aren't friends, uh, the likes of bullying, uh, which uh, seems to be pretty widespread in schools, but also angst about things like COVID and undoubtedly the war and that sort of thing. Yes, and again, another reason I suppose Childline Listening Service is a 24-7 service um, for all young people, um, non-judgmental, is because children and young people come to us with everything, uh, all different types of things and uh, it really does depend on what's going on for them in their lives and for everybody at the moment. The war, um, COVID um, and then of course going back to school are big issues Um, so we would have a lot of children and young people who are affected by that because they're hearing it everywhere now from conversations among um, their peers, from conversations from adults, in the news etc so it is something that we need to be conscientious about that they're going to have questions, they're going to have concerns and we need to be there to be able to help them through it and make sure they're getting the right information. Mm. Okay, and I I take it it's uh, sometimes difficult uh, for parents uh, to speak to children or children won't speak to their parents and they may speak to Childline, so parents might want to pass on your details to their children and encourage them to talk. I would. Normally, um, through both our Smart Moves programme, which is um, in schools, um, and our SHIELD anti-bullying programme, a lot of that is actually talking to the parents and the caregivers and the teachers about basically supporting themselves and having these big conversations and where can they turn? Because it's a concern for parents as well. Um, this, you know, big new developments in the in, in, from global scales to mm-hmm. again going back to school. Um, so we would have services for parents and caregivers as well, like our parents support line um, and um, again the website isbcc.ie we have a lot of different information on that mm. as well just trying to guide parents and caregivers on how to have those types of conversations and get the support and not need. kill them with kindness either I think sometimes some of uh, the best parents uh, put the most pressure on their children I think, to be honest, Michael, it's about balance. And I yeah. know from working with parents and caregivers, sometimes the most difficult thing that's asked of a parent is, 
trying to find that balance between being the good cop and being the bad cop. How much pressure do you put on? How much reassurance do you give? And that is a daily struggle. And I think when it comes to things like going back to school, you know, it's a it's a necessity. We know it's good for our children in the long run, but we also want to make sure that they are completely supported and that they know that they have people to talk to and that whatever they're feeling that's okay. Um, so yes, I think you're right that parents need that support and guidance to keep that balance. And again, why? of course we have services for children, that's our priority. Mm-hmm. We have our childline service, yeah. but we also have services out there for parents and caregivers. And, and Smart Moves is available to all, through all of the schools. You mentioned some of the schools are delivering it locally, uh, but uh, if anybody else uh, wants uh, to sign up, it is there, isn't it? Yes, at the moment we have 280 schools across the country taking part, which is a large increase from last year. Um, We've got incredibly positive feedback. It's completely free. And again, it's a resilience um, building program that looks at helping children transition from primary school to secondary school. And you can go to our website to look into signing up or contact myself at smartmoves.com at ispcc.ie if you have any further questions I'd be happy to answer them Very good Thank you indeed Smart Moves at ispcc.ie Good to talk to you Victoria and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme Victoria Hosen is uh, the Community Engagement Manager with the ISPCC Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, I suppose every sector is feeling pressure at the moment because of rising costs. Nursing homes are no different and smaller nursing homes appear to be feeling the pinch all the more. Some 39 nursing homes have closed in the last three years. This year alone, 10 nursing homes have either closed or have given notice that they're going to close. These are nursing homes that have 40 beds or less. Let's speak to Ty Daly, who's Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Ty, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, These would be particularly small nursing homes with just 40 beds. That's right, Jim. I mean, we've seen a trend, uh, a very unfortunate and regrettable trend over the last number of years. Um, you know, it's not a new phenomenon, but it's really come into sharp focus just in the last number of weeks uh, when we've seen literally, you know, three in, in, in this week alone announcing uh, their, their imminent closure. You know, I've been on your programme on many occasions uh, speaking about the failures of Fair Deal and the inadequate funding uh, of uh, the older person's care in this country. What we're seeing now is the manifestation of that and the, the, the awful consequences for families, mm. uh, for residents, and indeed for, for owners and staff. So, you know, this is heartbreaking for those who have to close their businesses. Uh, and, and what they've done is provided, you know, that high-quality care, community-based care for so many years. So, uh, mm. you know, the consequences are pretty uh, awful for everybody now at this point in time. So, you know, we have good engagement with government, to be fair, um, but they need to move quickly now. Uh, we met the minister on the 29th of March this year, and we were expecting a scheme to be in place by the 1st of, of July. Um, but I know in comments in recent days, the Minister has indicated that there will be uh, you know, some measures put into play over the coming weeks. So that will you know, stabilise okay. the sector, but there is a longer-term issue at play here as well. Obviously. Well, what about the residents or the model of care, if you like? I think there's an argument, or there's certainly an argument that's being made for smaller nursing homes rather than these very big nursing homes uh, which seem uh, impersonal to a large degree. Yeah, I think that's probably a mischaracterization, to be honest, Michael, because even if you have a large facility, you know, it depends on how it's constructed. 
you know, you could still have 100 beds, but, you know, in four units of 25, for example. So, um, I mean, that's the way of the world, unfortunately, in terms of economies of scale. But it can still be done uh, in such a way that you have, as I say, smaller units within it. But, the, you know, the funding model is key to this because mm. the, the current funding model is a disincentive, a perverse disincentive in many ways uh, to doing exactly that. And that's why we're seeing uh, an exit of many of the smaller providers because it, it just, uh, they've reached the end of the line. You know, they've had a difficult period with COVID and many have dipped into their reserves for COVID and now we're in a, in a period of unprecedented inflation. Where, uh, where does so all the money go, Ty? Because nursing home fees really are expensive. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a care in an acute hospital is €1,000 per day. Mm. Care in, in a public nursing home is of the order of €1,600 per week. And in a private nursing home, it's 1000 per week. So uh, the answer, the quick answer to your question is that 60, between 60 and 65% uh, of that €1,000 per week goes out the door in, in staffing immediately. So it is labour-intensive, obviously. So, you know, if, if there were a viable uh, business and a sustainable business, they wouldn't be closing. So this is a real, real wake-up call for government. We've been warning about this for a number of years, as you know. Um, but, you know, they cannot ignore the reality now uh, that we are losing um, vital healthcare providers in communities across Ireland. And the consequences for older people uh, will be dramatic, but there's also consequences for the wider health service in terms of accessibility of that community-based care. Mm. It can be difficult to get a space in a, a nursing home. This won't help. No, it's going to be, look, we always know it's going to be a difficult winter this year. You know, mm. we're coming out of COVID. Uh, there's talk of a very difficult flu, uh, you know, in Australia. And the, the, the twindemic now is what I'm hearing. So it is going to be a difficult winter. Mm. Um, and that's why it's important that we stabilise uh, the provision that we have and work with Nursing Homes Ireland and individual providers mm. to stabilise current provision and then look at the medium term. I mean, but, government reports have highlighted this for a number of years, but the inaction now uh, means that we're in a crisis. But, uh, but, you know, but can you put a figure on the number of beds lost? I mean, it must be 1,000, oh, yeah. 2,000, is it? Uh, not as of yet. I mean, we're, we're probably around the 450 beds at this oh, right. point in time. Okay. But there's also been uh, bed closures in the, in the public system. Uh, in the last two years, they have probably reduced their capacity by about 500 beds. Now, that's mm. due to physical environment. So there has been, in total, probably close to 1,000 beds uh, between public, private and voluntary. And, and that's at a time when we have an ageing population. We mm. should be celebrating the fact that people are living longer and putting a range of services in place to meet their care needs. This uh, development is, is going against all of what we're talking about in terms of mm. shelter care, in terms of care in the community. So, look, it, it, it's, it's heartbreaking for, for the residents because that's their home. So for many residents now, they're being told, we're closing and you have yeah, to find a new home. Yeah, it is really, really heartbreaking. It can be heartbreaking for their families as well and very confusing for, for the residents. Uh, it can be just devastating. It's it is. the end of the world uh, for people to move out of a, a centre like that. Uh, on That's location. right. Yeah. I mean, the people I've spoken mm. to this week, providers and indeed, uh, you know, families, they are really, really heartbroken. And, uh, you know, it's mm. not too late to, to step in. Now you'll have seen um, one of our colleagues uh, speaking recently to the media in, in Athlone, you know, mm. where they're saying it's too late for them, but it's not too late for others. Mm. And that's, the, I suppose, the, the wake-up call, if you like, for government. And, and is it that know. the fees should be increased for families, or is it that the government uh, no, the should gov- give more I subvention? Mean, the funding, well, the funding under Fair Deal is inadequate. I mean, uh, at the moment, um, you know, there needs to be an increase in, in the Fair Deal fee. I mean, the Fair Deal fee is set by government. Uh, providers have no uh, opportunity to offset 
uh, that inflationary cost. So uh, that's the that's the issue at the moment. And to be fair, it's been accepted. The minister has said on the on the Dáil record that she's acutely aware and is working on a programme. But you know, we need to expedite that programme and and put it in place quickly to stabilise the sector, as I said, but also inject some confidence because providers are saying to me, we don't see a future. Okay. Um, and, and we have to get out of the business. That's, yeah. that's heartbreaking, as I say, on so many levels. OK, unfortunately, uh, we need someone to provide the service. Uh, that's the reality of the situation. Tyg, thank you indeed for Good joining us on the programme. Thank you, Tyg Daly, Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the college is uh, set to open in uh, the next couple of weeks as many of uh, those leaving cert students getting their results right now will be very much uh, aware and they'll be hoping uh, not just to go to college but also to get somewhere to live. Uh, I'm sure an awful lot of wor- work has been done at this stage but for those who haven't secured accommodation it's going to be a last minute scramble and a very difficult task and there's a lot of pitfalls. The Irish Property Owners Association is offering advice to students uh, this week and let's speak to Mary Conway who is its chair and a very good morning to you Mary and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Your organisation represents landlords uh, but you're suggesting to students uh, to watch out for rogue landlords. Thank you for having me Michael and uh, good luck to everybody getting the results this morning. It's uh it's a tough time. It is, isn't it? Excitement. Yeah. <laughs> and then, where am I going to live? Yeah. Um, I suppose, I'm speaking from personal experience here, I have been a landlady for 27 years. Um, I had students for a very long time. And um, I, you know, I know the difficulty it is coming to Dublin for the first time and the total overwhelm. Um, a lot of landlords are not keen to take first years. Um for the simple reason it's a first year out of home, they tend to go a little bit wild for the mm. first couple of weeks. So, you know, for somebody who's starting out, doesn't know anybody in Dublin, it might be a good idea to go into digs, you know, um, from uh, Sunday night to Friday evening and have your meals handed to you, a bit like home from home. Yeah. But for most students, they aren't keen on that because they feel it's restricting their lifestyle too much. But mm. um, there's a they, they come with house rules, I suppose. They do, yeah. no overnight guests yeah. and all the rest and all the things, you know, no, not coming in drunk and all the things that you want to do when you yeah. go off to college and leave home for the first time. There appears to be a huge shortage of student accommodation this year. Um, a lot of landlords have left the um, the sector due to over-regulation and over-taxation. And then students are also in competition with overseas workers who are coming in who will sign a one-year lease and her, who are there all the time. Mm. So I would suggest to students don't rule, uh, don't outrule uh, going into a family home. A lot of the colleges have lists of um, and they've appealed to homeowners yeah. and ex-graduates, you know, to take somebody in for mm-hmm. for a year. And homeowners can take students in. It's worth mentioning as well because. Uh uh, there's going to be huge uh, demand, uh, but they can take students in uh, and earn up to €14,000 tax-free. tax-free, yeah. 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 And it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. But with regards to, you know, finding a house yeah. share for four or five, um, I suppose be really careful of scams. If it seems too good to be true, question mm. it. And I was a victim of one of these scams years ago where somebody copied my ad, put it in, 
um, different photographs and I was getting all these emails and I'm thinking, you know, I don't even have an ad up. Yeah. And they had advertised um, a city centre apartment that normally would be, I suppose, 1,500 euros. Uh, they had advertised it at around 800. Oh. And of course, everybody jumped on this and I'm thinking, where's all this coming from? You know, make sure that you meet the landlord or the agent. If it's a rep- if it's an agent, they're licensed. They will have identity, and no agent, you know, will object to showing their identity. And um, if it's a landlord, they should have proof of ownership, either you know, an insurance certificate for the house or a, mm. um, a local property tax receipt. And you know, go through everything in detail. Um, don't panic and take the first property you see, particularly anything that's damp or mouldy, um, because they are out there. And a lot of the time, it's you know, the landlord is blamed for it's been mouldy, but it's could be the tenants drying clothes in the house, not opening windows, having lots mm. of showers, not ventilating the place. But it's still mm. no excuse. Yeah. I suppose the, fir- the first thing, though, Mary, is to see the property. I was speaking yes. with uh, USI uh, earlier in the week and uh, they were telling me uh, about somebody who paid a, a deposit uh, on an apartment, uh, got to the building and it was demolished. Yes, and I've had um, students come from France in the past where they got... Um, um, these were students going to VCU. They got a lovely location, which was directly behind the college, paid out a deposit of 600 euros, a rent of 600, arrived to find the house boarded up and the man in a nursing home. Mm. Um, and they had completely lost their 1,200 euros. Mm. So make sure, and this would be more students that are coming from abroad that realise there's a, a housing crisis and they will see an ad on Facebook. Um, and a lot of times these ads are just scams. Mm. So, you know, any good landlord, any um, agent will meet you at the house. They will show you everything. Make sure the place is clean, that you get a written inventory and, you know, preferably a photographic inventory. I had somebody moving into a house um, yesterday because I'm also an agent and I have produced a 20 page uh, photographic inventory that goes to the landlord and goes to the tenant Mm. and has to be signed off. Even Even to take a video on your phone. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Make sure mm. that it's close to your college, that mm. you're not commuting for, you know, a good hour and spending another, you know, 20, 50 euros a week on um, on public transport, transport because yeah. it's mm-hmm. a cheap rent. Yeah. And make sure that, you know, when you sign your contract, if it says the rent is based on five people sharing, if the fifth person moves out, can you get the fifth person? Or, you know, are the four of you going to have to share the rent and are you going to be able to do it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, is this uh, advice uh, that you also share with landlords? Absolutely. And, mm. you know, there are minimum standards of rental accommodation and there are things like, you know, that um, if you don't have access to... Um, a tumble dryer that you've access to a garden to dry your clothes. Mm. You know, that there are working extractor fans in bathrooms, that windows can be opened, that there are window restrictors, that there are vents in every room. And the other one thing I would say is to check the utilities and what way the utilities are set up yeah. um, and who's going to be paying for them. Are they if you're paying the electricity you? bill, yeah, because the rent, yes. might, <laughs> rent might seem relatively cheap in this day and age until the electricity bill comes in because they're going through the roof. Yes, and what way is the house being heated? You mm. know, um, in the old days, it used to be a back boiler and you had to buy turf or coal or whatever. Um, but that's not mm. so common now. But, you know, are people going to be uh, there at weekends that are using electricity and gas and you're not going to be there? Yeah. Can often cause huge fights. Um, is it pay-as-you-go 
um, uh, utilities. And that actually can work at more expensive than actually having a bill and putting it on direct debit. Okay. I think uh, students have a, a bad reputation, warranted or, or not. Uh, you said uh, you wouldn't be too keen on taking in first years. Uh, what's the attitude generally amongst your members uh, towards taking in? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And students, uh, there's the behaviour, the risk to the property uh, because of parties and all of that sort of uh, thing. Uh, but there's also uh, the limited time that they're going to use the property. Yeah, and that can be a lot. Uh, you know, that can be an issue for a lot of landlords because, unfortunately, a mortgage has to be paid uh, for twelve months of the year, and the students are only there maybe for eight and a half months a year. But generally, you know, there's, there's students coming into the summer that the apartment or house can be rented out for the summer. I was a landlord to many students over the years, and I would say ninety nine percent of the time, my experience were good. Uh, they were great students. I always loved meeting the parents, either coming at the visit or, um, you know, when the kids were checking in. Mm. Um, and you got a fairly good idea as to, um, and I suppose I would have stamped my feet in the first month, you know, if there's any noise or whatever, excess noise. Because remember, people other side might be uh, of the house, particularly if it's a terraced house, they might have to go to work in the morning and they mightn't appreciate a party going on to three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, a lot of the time as well is looking at the course the students are doing and yeah. what the workload is going to be at. And I'm sure it's only a, a small cohort uh, who misbehave like that. Uh, and yeah. the same with landlords, uh, but there are undoubtedly uh, some rogue landlords who take advantage of students and you talked about the conditions there and so on. But I suppose that's what the Residential Tenancies Board is there for in the first place. You are obliged by laws we've been hearing over the last few weeks to register with the RTB uh, and yeah. if there's something wrong the tenant can take a complaint uh, and so forth. Are you surprised <laughs> as a, a landlord's representative uh, to hear uh, that some politicians uh, forgot to re-register properties? 
Um, I don't want to take. I, I, this, I suppose this is a controversial question. No, well, and just um, ge- just and, uh, just talk about the process, uh, and I, I'm not talking the specifically. Process is yeah. so complicated that actually I feel sorry for some of them because it's so onerous and it's so it changes so many times. There have been 45 different pieces of legislation since 2008. Okay. But if so, you if you registered with uh, the RTB in 2019, 2020, yeah. uh, you got your reminder in 2021 and didn't register, uh, would you be surprised to hear that uh, it was an oversight? It's actually more complicated than that. What was happened up to now was what was called a four-year, a part four tenancy. Yeah. So you registered your tenancy every four years. Mm. So technically, if somebody registered a tenancy in 2019, it didn't have to be registered again for another four years. But everything has changed in the last, um, since I think November of last year. Yeah, my apologies. It's an annual thing now. It's an annual thing now. So it can actually be quite easy to miss out on something. Like I have tenants who moved out of a property yesterday. I need to register the new tenants, but I need to fill out a whole lot of forms to say why the other tenants left. And then I need to fill out more paperwork to do a rent review on the new tenants. And all that has to be submitted. So it's very cumbersome. It's very difficult. I'm not saying they were right or wrong. But it's easy to fall foul of the system, even if you have nothing else to do and you're completely on top of your paperwork. Okay, interesting. Thank you, Mary, for that. Uh, And thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Mary Conway is uh, the chair of the Irish Property Owners Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? Uh, in the context of uh, politicians failing to register or re-register with uh, the Residential Tenancies Board, Mary Conway of the Irish Property Owners Association saying it can be a cumbersome process at, at times. If uh, tenants leave, you've got to fill in a form and explain to the RTB why that is uh, the case. Uh, and then you've got to fill in uh, another form and say who the new tenants are what the new rent is and then re-register the property and so on it can be cumbersome as she said and easy to fall foul of she said uh, she feels sorry for some of them without naming who she might feel sorry for uh, let's speak uh, to Paul Murphy people before Profit TD for Dublin South West very good morning to you Paul thank you indeed uh, for joining us I don't think you have much sympathy for Stephen Donnelly at the moment do you? I don't um, he's a government minister he's now the second Minister in what a couple of weeks to be in breach of the rules that they create uh, themselves. And in this case, it's a senior minister who was not registered, contrary to the law, uh, with the RTB for a period of uh, three years. Um, he also earlier on uh, failed to declare when speaking in favour of a different tax treatment for accidental landlords that, in fact, he himself was an accidental landlord, again, in breach of the um, ethics legislation, the Ethics and Public mm. Office Act. Um, so that's that's at least two occasions now we have Stephen Donnelly in breach of the rules about residential tenancies and then the rules about ethics in public office and declaring uh, conflicts of, of interest. And this comes hot on the heels of, of Robert Troy, of course. OK, uh, and he's been fined... Uh, he's paid a hundred euro after being fined. Uh, is that significant? Uh, because that's found the minister in breach of the law. Um, yeah, I mean, 
obviously 100 euro isn't a lot of money for someone like Stephen Donnelly no no question about uh, it yeah. um, it but, is significant in the sense but the principle of being fined uh, to have been found in breach of the law uh, that, to the extent that it results in a fine I would have thought was significant yes I mean you know we, we have a a landlord in the government who is in breach of the law like that's it's the definition of a rogue landlord, you know, uh, someone who is not abiding by the legislation as it pertains to uh, landlords. And that's a, that is a serious matter. And fair enough, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm open to the argument that the system is unnecessarily bureaucratic, should be streamlined or whatever. I'm open to all of that. But none of that is any excuse for a, a TD, in particular government minister. They, they design, they stand over these uh, schemes, they're responsible for them. So the idea that they don't have to, you know, that they can just use that as an excuse. And it obviously sends a message to other landlords that, well, no, if you find it a bit too bureaucratic or if you forget, no problem. And it doesn't matter if you if you don't register when it's, it's at all that you should be registered for a very good uh, reason. Hmm. He described himself as an accidental landlord and that the policy uh, for how the government taxes landlords favoured corporate landlords over accidental landlords uh, and was asking for a tax break for people like himself in the Dáil. Uh, the quote is, we need people who are able to rent places. We had a situation where Irish citizens who had a, a property for their pensioner through negative equity were being taxed at about 50% of rental income. Corporate investors were paying a tiny fraction of that. I didn't believe that was the right policy. I still don't. Um, does it matter that uh, the minister made that statement in the Dáil about his own circumstance without announcing to the Dáil uh, that he was speaking about his own circumstance? It, it does matter. Um, I mean, and it matters, and it, it matters separately from the actual point that he's making. And um, there's a very genuine point, mm, and yeah. a point I agree with about the you know extremely favourable tax treatment given to the, the so-called REITs, the real estate investment uh, trusts, the big corporate landlords who who get away with paying very very little tax. So I agree with that point. Um, but there is a requirement again in the law and. You know, adhered to by many CDs, you hear them in the doll. I think we would have spoken about this previously, uh, that when you're speaking about something that affects you and you're pushing for a change that you personally would benefit from, well, then you have to declare that in the doll, in the debate at the time. You have to say, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm going to, I'm an accidental landlord, actually, and this would benefit me. Mm. And, you, and, and you just, they say it in, you know, a sentence or two at the start of the speech and you go yeah. on to make the point. Okay. Whereas he spoke on a number of occasions about this without revealing and that he would personally uh, benefit from it. Okay, and uh, it's not just that you think he should have said it, or others might think the same, or may not. Uh, the law says you have to. Mm-hmm. You have to declare it. It's the Ethics and Public Office Act. The law is very, very, very clear about this. That where okay. you're speaking about something that you have a personal interest in, you have to declare it when right. you speak. So Stephen Donnelly didn't. Stephen Donnelly broke that law, and Robert Troy broke that law. Is that right? Yes, correct. Um, so what does that mean? Well, it, it means that we have government ministers. I mean, we've, we've lost Robert Troy now, but we still have Stephen Donnelly, yeah. who repeatedly broke the ethics legislation. Yeah. Um, where Michal Martin, the Taoiseach's defence, actually has been to say, well, the, the main thing is it was registered on the register of members' interest, which is a thing. Obviously, that was the thing that originally Robert Troy fell foul of. He hadn't registered various things in the register of members' interest. But this is a separate requirement that when you're speaking about 
a particular issue in the debate, you have to declare it then and there. So people who are listening to your words, be they in the doll or mm. you know in the media or watching at home yeah. or whatever, yeah. are able to take that into account and say, okay, okay he's, and it doesn't discount what they're saying, but it's just important information for people to, to know. No, but what about the law? How valid is why 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 is there a law uh, or what consequence is there for breaking the law? I mean, we're speaking on a, a radio station now, and like any radio station, there's laws that govern what happens uh, during the broadcast and if we break the law, the Broadcasting Act, there will be consequences. Uh, it could shut the radio station down or there could be a huge fine. Yeah. I mean, in practice, there are no consequences for the breaching of this uh, law. Um, I mean, I, we'll see. I, I still have no meaningful response, you know, apart from acknowledgement to my complaints uh, to SIPO, the Standards and Public yeah. Office Act, office, who, who deal with this sort of stuff. I, I've complained now what, it's probably two weeks ago now that I, I would have complained to Disciple about Robert Troy. I don't have any meaningful uh, response. Um, so we, we have these laws on paper, which are, I think, necessary and good uh, laws, but we don't have any mechanism to ensure that they're actually enforced and that there's consequences for those who, who breach them. Yes. And that's all revealed by the fact that all this is only coming out now because the Robert Troy stuff was mm. discovered and then journalists went, you know, presumably yeah, yeah. trawling mm. to try and find uh, records of this. Well, that, that just sounds to me like the law is an ass. Uh, yeah, that, okay. that's, but every year, I mean, SIPO, they produce this report, an annual report every year, saying all the things that, they're, that they have been looking to be changed and what action has taken. And this mm-hmm. goes on over four or five pages, right? You know, in each page, you've got maybe 10 or 12 recommendations. And beside the vast majority of those recommendations, there's another column which says progress made, and the answer in almost every single box is none. None, mm-hmm. none, 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 none. There's no progress made in terms of doing the various, they're the ones who are tasked with mm. like enforcing this law, and every year they come back and they say, look, we're not able to do this, we don't have the resources, we don't have the laws, we don't have the sanctions available mm. for us to be able to actually do it, and, and nothing has been done to, to actually give them those powers. Okay, uh, it's not just government ministers uh, who've failed in their duty to register with the RTB as landlords. Uh, Sinn Féin's Johnny Gurk uh, was guilty of the same mistake, uh, but as he said, it was a mistake uh, and he said he'd have to forgive Stephen Donnelly uh, and assume it was an oversight because that's what happened with him. Uh, he believes uh, that it, it is very easily done uh, and um, we just heard from the Irish Property Owners Association saying it's easy to fall foul of. Uh, does it matter to you, Paul Murphy, uh, that ministers made a mistake if that's what happened in these incidents? Uh, it, I mean, we all make mistakes, don't we? We, we do, um, but these are quite serious mistakes for government ministers or TDs not to be registering their properties with the RTV when it's very clearly the law that they have to do so. Um, you know, I, I think that we have a disproportionate number of landlords in the doll already. I think they have a disproportionate influence compared to their, like, their numbers in society generally. But at the very, very, very least, it shouldn't be too much to ask that those landlords who are in the doll or even are in the government would make sure that they abide by all the laws and the rules related to being a landlord. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a serious mistake. It's not a small mistake. Um, and I, I think really Stephen Donnelly will have to come before the doll when we're, we're back what Wednesday week um, to, to explain how this happened. Um, were there other instances where he spoke about issues where he should have declared it and to see how, how kind of widespread his, his mistakes were? Mm. Okay. Uh, and what about all of the other landlords? Uh, you'd have to listen to 80... 80, 80 what is this... Uh, 
half of the doll. Yeah, yeah. By, by some by some counts anyway. Yeah, doll or, or landlord. Yeah. Yeah. Um, should should everybody explain if they've made mistakes or if there's been oversights or if they spoke and didn't declare or yeah. they should well I, actually mm-hmm. I was thinking that actually the, the focus now on this section of the ethics and public office act yeah. does raise an interesting question because it also says where you have where you're voting on an issue that you're directly affected by you need to give um, a kind of note to the clerk to explain look I have a personal interest mm-hmm. for example on the last voting day of the doll the doll voted down people before profits rent reductions bill, which would reduce rents for tenants across the country. Um, and I can only assume that um, well, landlords was, didn't. Well, there was a in. lot of landlords voting for that or voting exactly. against it. And presumably they didn't all tell the, the clerk that, uh, oh, I have an interest here. Uh, so it does pose an And, and, and the interest is that they wouldn't be able to put the rent up if your bill had gone it, through. It, exactly. Um, and that, that's information worth knowing and worth having on the on the public record. Um, so that's something I'm going to um, investigate. Should you even have a vote on that? But that's, I, I don't think you should. Um, I don't think landlords should be voting on things that directly uh, affect them. I, I think it's a problem. Um, Stephen Donnelly drew the comparison with, uh, oh, but sure, should you have to explain if you benefit from the health service because we all benefit from the health service being better. But I think there's a fundamental difference, which is that all of us would benefit from the health service being better, whereas only a minority benefit from rents going up. Um, and I think that's, that's why there is a conflict of interest and it isn't appropriate that, that landlords are voting on these things. I don't understand what the argument was there at all. <laughs> but a landlord voting on rent increases or not uh, is the same as a politician voting on something to do with the health service. Yeah. <laughs> no, you've lost me. I'm sorry. Over my <laughs> head. <laughs> Just totally lost on that one altogether. Indeed. But I said I have to apologise. I should have acknowledged that I drink water um, when I was campaigning against Irish water. <laughs> I, I would benefit from the abolition of water changes. Well, maybe you should declare it. Well, I suppose you just have on the public airwaves. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the, the programme uh, this morning. Paul Murphy, uh, People Before Profit TD. Now, speaking of uh, the health service, uh, we were speaking about our, our Ladies Hospital in Navin with Minister Damien English on the programme yesterday. And we did mention some of uh, the concerns that were brought to our attention by staff in the hospital about the arrangements uh, during the refurbishment of the morgue and we were contacted after the programme by the Ireland East Hospital Group uh, to say that the hospital, Our Lady's Hospital, wishes to correct some issues that were raised regarding the mortuary refurbishment as discussed on our programme yesterday. They say no section of corridor has been closed to the public to allow for remains to be stored. They say the remains are being kept in a refrigerated unit in a secure room. Therefore, no one will stumble across them as reported. All protocols and processes regarding mortuaries in hospitals are being followed and all remains are collected in a timely fashion. Our thanks to the Ireland East Hospital Group uh, for contacting us uh, with that after the programme yesterday. Uh, And we're apologising this morning for... um, uh, any uh, misunderstanding uh, that might have resulted uh, from what was said on the programme yesterday, but there were concerns that were brought to us by staff in the hospital, we understand it to be staff in the hospital, that we brought to the Minister during a conversation on the programme yesterday. And the reason we did that was because we asked the HSE about this on Monday. We asked the HSE about this on Tuesday. And we had no response. 
So uh, we decided to put the uh, concerns into the public domain, seeing as how once again our requests for information were uh, being unresponded to. Uh, We're delighted now that we did make uh, those concerns public, that the HSC has moved to respond to to those concerns uh, and uh, to assure us all that the concerns, uh, there's there's no grounds to the concerns uh, and that it's happened after the programme that uh, we discussed it uh, on with uh, Minister English yesterday. As I say, thanks to the Ireland East Hospital Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. You need to think about the electricity that you are using and when you use it and do you need everything on that you have on or could you cut back on some of the appliances that you're using or unplug things at times. Uh, This is according to the Taoiseach who is warning us uh, that energy prices are going to continue to rise and they will rise sharply as we go into the autumn and the winter. This follows the increase announced yesterday by Electric Ireland. Electricity is to go up by 26.7% and gas prices by 37.5% from the 1st of October. As you've been hearing this morning, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, is saying uh, the government is going to move to help people uh, face these increases in prices, but they are exceptionally high prices that we're paying for energy. Let's speak to Charlie Weston, the personal finance editor with the Irish Independent. Uh, It goes without saying, I suppose, Charlie, very, very high prices. Yeah, there's extraordinary increases, aren't they? Uh, I I, I think it's just going to cause economic carnage for households and for small businesses in particular, Michael. You know, Here's another €440 Euros going to be whacked on to the annual cost of your electricity from Electric Ireland. And as we know, they're the biggest supplier in the country, state-owned by ESB. Mm. Ga- gas going up 37%, another €500. Euros. That means that your electricity bill will have doubled since the start of 2021 when the energy crisis started. Mm. And similarly for your gas bill, um, these are just extraordinary increases. And come a month since uh, the last electric iron increase which was only in August you know. Yeah. So well I was going to say own. you could do an awful lot with 440 euro but you could probably have done an awful lot more at the start of 2021 and this is part of the problem because it's not just the energy prices that are increasing everything is increasing in line. It is like food is up 600 euros or so you know home heating oil and let's remember a million and a half people depend on home heating oil to heat their homes in winter that has doubled you know that's now nearly 1400 euros for a thousand litre fill that's that's twice what it was at the start of last year mm. uh you know you, petrol and diesel as we know it's probably costing the average driver even in a modest car about an extra 600 euros interest rates you know if you're on a track or a variable and about half a million people are on these uh you they've already gone up by uh half a percent that's added about 50 euros to a 200 euro track mm. mortgage we probably get the same again we may even get a 0.75 percent increase uh this next thursday so you know, you could be looking at, uh, you know, uh, 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 I don't know, maybe 120, 130 euros extra a month for, for, for those people. Uh, so you're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, it's coming in all directions. And that's mm. only some of it, broadband services, mobile phone services. Uh, you know, the, the, the energy, unfortunately, this energy crisis feeds through into, it feeds through into everything. And, um, you know, eventually that, that comes out in higher prices all around. Okay, we uh, could do with some help. Can we be saved? Is there a lifeboat, as you describe it in the paper this morning? We desperately need a lifeboat here because, look, at let's face it, a lot of businesses uh, and, and particularly an awful lot of households are just going to sink 
under the weight of those increases. They will not be able to manage it. Particularly older people, there may be an increase, may have been an increase in the fuel allowance. Uh, we got a 200 euro credit uh, there at the start of the year for electricity bills and VAT was reduced on gas, but nothing was done on home heating oil, mind you. Uh, but, you know, that won't cut it if that's what they're going to come up with again. They're going to have to extend that cut in the VAT. A bigger credit will have to be given to everybody, even though it's indiscriminate and rich people get it and poor people get it and middle income people get it. It doesn't matter. It's, it's going to be too complicated to target it. And the fuel allowance will have to be significantly increased because otherwise families just won't be able to cope. I mean, I, it's almost laughable mm-hmm. that, that, that Lex Garden said they're putting three million euros into a hardship fund uh, that's going to be distributed through St. Vincent de Paul and MABS. That three million euros will be eaten up in, in, in about after the first bill arrives in November, uh, October, in November, December, you know. Mm, yeah, it's uh, it's mind boggling. It, it really is. And you said Electric Ireland is uh, the biggest uh, electricity supplier in the country. Uh, seeing the Irish Independent this morning uh, that it's 1.2 million customers. Um, but does it matter who you're with? Uh, because the prices are going up with everybody. They, they, they are. They're all going to go up. I mean, look at it. You might be sitting pretty saying, oh, but I'm with Energy and mm. they haven't gone this time yet. Or I'm with, you know, uh, whoever, Borgosh, you know, because they will go. Don't worry. They will go again. And we've had five increases. But it does, Michael. It does. This is really, really important. It does matter that you switch or at the very least ring your current supplier and tell them, I need I need a new deal. You get you usually get a one-year deal if you switch or move around. And it's usually a discount can be 30, 40%. So it's 30, 40% of what they call the standard tariff. And the standard tariff tends to be ridiculously high. It's a mm. rip-off. So if you're out of contract, if you've done your one year, or else if you've never switched, you're likely paying the highest rates, these standard tariffs. So you need to either switch, which can be done very easy, just yeah. pick out your bill and, and, and ring, uh, you know, get on to bonkers.ie or switcher.ie and, and see which is a good deal. They all have discounts. They all have discounts between 30 and 40%. You get locked in for that 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 discount for a year. Mm. Now it doesn't mean your electricity won't get up, go up, but it just means you're coming off that very expensive high standard rate. And look, even if you don't want to switch, mm. at least ring up your current supplier and say, "Look, at, can you give me a, a deal here? Give me some kind of a, yeah. a one-year discount." And uh, it'll be hard to get through to them, but it'd be well worth it. You could be saving three hundred euros on electricity. Now that'll be eaten up by price increases, but if you do nothing. You're looking at 600 euros, you know, so it's yeah. worth doing, Michael. It's, it's a lot of money. Uh, and when money is tight, it's all the more. Uh, but it's odd, isn't it? Uh, because loyalty is being penalised. As always in this country, we're, we're, we're very good at penalising loyalty. We never seem to uh, do anything else. You know, the rules were supposed to be brought in to stop this nonsense in the, with the insurance industry. But it still happens with utilities, with broadband providers. If you're not moving around, you're not one of the savvy ones. Mm. The, the, the market is rigged against you, essentially. Let's be let's be brutal about it. It's it's it, the market is, is is designed so they can say they have discounts and you know decent rates, but that's only for the people who are prepared to put a bit of effort in and move around. Otherwise, yeah. the market is rigged against you. So you know, forget loyalty, forget it. It, yeah. it doesn't count for anything really. And you're really at a, a disadvantage uh, if you're not on the internet. You are, I'm afraid. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a point that um, you know people who are, you know, not not savvy and, and mm. don't have internet access and don't have the time or time poor either as well. Yeah. They tend to get the worst deals if you just accept the deal that they give you. 
you're at a disadvantage. But you have the phone. You can always pick up the phone, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Pick up the phone to your supplier mm. or pick up a phone to another supplier and, mm. and you can do it over the phone if you can get through. So yeah. don't despair if you haven't got the... Well, this is it. Now, I, I don't think it takes too long to uh, check prices on the internet and we quite often get calls from older people in particular who say, I don't have the internet and I don't know how to use it and that sort of thing. And I usually say, but just ask somebody that uh, you know, a younger person, uh, because <laughs> they'll do it sitting in front of you on their phone kind of thing. That's good advice. They will. They certainly will. Look, but if you can't do that, if you don't know anybody mm. who has the time to do that, and maybe you know somebody young who's gone off to college and they're not available now, just at the very least, get on to your own supplier and say, look, I can't, I can't bear this increase. You must have a deal there that you can offer me. And don't just accept some, what they call it, look at a little loyalty mm. uh, discount at 14%. Electric Ireland have those kind of things. Tell them you want a one-year deal with a decent discount of 30%. You heard that guy on the radio, Charlie Weston, and he says we can get 30% discounts. And you can, and if they tell you you can't, tell them to email me at cweston at independent.ie because, you know, they like to pull the wool over your eyes, but you should be able to get a deal by ringing them and saying to them, I want a deal. I can't accept that kind of price increase. Mm. You have deals for switchers. I want that deal. And I'm sure everybody knows if Charlie Weston in the Irish Independent says you can get that 30% discount, you can get that 30% discount. Uh, But is it going to rise even further? Uh, Are we ever going to see an end in these creases or uh, is it a bottomless pit as such? I have no good news here. Sorry, Michael, I have no good news. Look, at if I had a euro for every time somebody on Twitter says to me, have you no good news, Charlie? <laughs> there, there isn't good news on this at the moment, Michael, unfortunately. It just isn't. Um, Electric Ireland said yesterday the reason that they've pushed up these prices again for the fifth time since, since the start of last year is that wholesale gas prices are up 700%. 700%. Now, there was some dip yesterday. Um, you know, there's some good news is that the only bit of good news is that the Germans have managed to fill up their storage capacity with, with gas. That's helped a bit. So we might see gas prices easing off a bit. But the problem here is the Russians and the, they're restricting the supply mm. of gas to, to Europe. And that, that's going to keep prices pretty And that high. electricity is linked to the price of gas, isn't it? Because it's not necessarily a 700% increase in the cost of generating electricity. No, there, there wouldn't be those kind of increases in generation costs. But you're absolutely right. Half of the power stations in this country are run off gas. So if wholesale gas prices go up 700%, that feeds through into the cost of electricity. You know, there's no way of getting away from that. And we might own uh, ESB Electric Ireland. But, um, you know, it, it, you know, people are saying to me, oh, we should nationalise the, the, the energy companies. We own ESB Electric Ireland. Mm. But even if it's owned by a private company or owned by the state, there's nothing they can do if their input cost has gone up 700%, you know, and that's, I'm not defending the ESP Electric Ireland, but that they really are in a, in, a, in a difficult position. So that means the rest of us are going to suffer. Okay. Always great to talk to you, Charlie. Thank you indeed for joining us today. You're welcome, Michael. Thank you. Charlie Weston is uh, the personal finance editor with the Irish Independent. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, Paul Reed is uh, to finish as uh, the CEO in the HSE on uh, the 3rd of October. Interesting, uh, I think, uh, for a, Peter, a lot of people locally to see Stephen Mulvaney to take over uh, that role as acting chief executive, at least after his departure, because Stephen Mulvaney uh, would have headed up uh, the Northeastern Health Board uh, for some time and will be familiar to many of our listeners. Uh, but Paul Reed was uh, speaking yesterday about that 
Health Service. And he spoke about a number of issues, uh, but he also spoke about the emergency department in Navan. Uh, and he said the HSE has to make the closure happen in a safe way. Uh, we heard yesterday on the programme uh, from Damien English, Minister of State, uh, that he spoke uh, to uh, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, on Tuesday. Uh, and despite reports in the Irish Times this week that the HSE is going to close the emergency department in September, uh, Damien English told us, Stephen Donnelly told us that's not going to happen. Let's speak uh, to the chair of Meath County Council, Nick Killian, independent councillor who's on the line. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Good morning, Michael. What did you make of what Damien English had to say? Um, I have to say, and I, I don't have criticism of, of, of another politician, he was a bit all over the place. Um, and he was getting himself caught up. Look, the bottom line here, he has stated very clearly that the government have not sanctioned the closure uh, of the Navin A&E situation. I mean, that's what he said on, on your programme yesterday. So my, my question at this stage is, Michael, are the HSC going to ignore a ministerial order from Stephen Donnelly? Or is he I going to give when he has to invoke Section 10 of the Health Act or something like that, if I remember correctly? Uh, yeah. He has the power to stop them from acting, but he actually has to invoke uh, part of the Health Act. Or is he not going to do it? Like this is so unfair. And to be fair to yourselves, you've kept the the, the, the this rolling, and we're still not any further on than we were when we started talking about this uh, at the end of June. We're here on the second of September uh, with a review committee that appears to be going to be ignored as to what the wishes of the county the people of County Meath want. Like for example, I wrote to the minister as Cahirlock. Uh, on August 16th, and apart from just an acknowledgement, I still haven't had a reply from Stephen Donnelly. Asking for a meeting, for Asking a, delega- for a, meeting, for, yes. for a yes. delegation from Meath yes. County Council, yourself and other councillors uh, as public representatives. And um, we have our first meeting back after the summer break on Monday. And the councillors are going to be asking the question, well, you know, Cahirlach, uh, what rep- response did you get? Hmm. I didn't. I have so I have nothing to report to the councillors. Not only that, but and I mean that's very very important. Uh, but you are the democratically elected public representatives, yes. and your constituents will be asking you. I mean, when you stood for election, anybody who stood for election for Meath County Council would have been asked about the health service and the local hospital and all of these things. And now you can't answer them because the minister won't inform you. And neither can my colleagues. Like mm. my thirty-nine colleagues, cannot don't have answers. And you know, again, looking at the Irish Times article yesterday, um, you know, the word configuration, which we spoke about before, mm. looms large e- even in that article. Um, so it seems that the HSE are hell bent. We'll do this review. We'll come up with what we want to come up with, and we'll go ahead with the closure. How did and you yes. read the, the the minutes from the health board meeting, which I think was on the 29th of June? Uh, the Irish Times well, reported well, on them. Well, it was only the report. I mean, I haven't seen them. Mm, but, but but the, but there was direct the article. But there was direct quotes from the minutes of that meeting in the article in the Irish Times, and it looked to me as though. Paul Reid had spoken to Stephen Donnelly. Stephen Donnelly told Paul Reid, I- I'm going to 
uh, look for um, a review of this. Uh, I'm going to commission a review uh, of this. Uh, and Paul Reid went to the meeting then on the 29th of June and said, look, they're, they're going to have a review, but we'll close it then after that. That's unacceptable. <laughs> you know. Well, I don't know yeah. that that's what happened. I'm just saying that that's well, we, nobody here know, to we, answer. We, we, there's nobody to answer. Yeah. I mean, only only that was reported yesterday. We wouldn't have heard about it mm. and haven't heard about it. So, uh, Did you read it the same way, though? I, yes, I did. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at it now at the yeah. moment. Mm. Um you know, yeah, you're you're quite correct, mm. and I know Paul Reid is is stepping down in October, and obviously we wish him all the best. He's mm. done good work on COVID and everything like that, but he's very disappointing on Navin Hospital. And you you quoted there at the top of uh, the introduction to myself coming on mm. about what he said. Um, yes, and and another thing that Damien, just referring back, I mean. Um, Jerry McEntee sat in front of myself, officials of Mead County Council and 12 other councillors and told us straight up, as he did on your programme, that he was gagged by the minister. Mm. So, Damien, you know, he, he wasn't good on that particular point. Mm. He, said he, 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 said he, he said he didn't hear the interview. <laughs> he said there were no gagging orders. I can't speak for Jerry McIntyre. I didn't hear the interview. But, yeah. I mean, it's a matter of public record now. So, that's what I'm saying. Mm. So that is a matter of public record. Um, now, from from our point of view, um, where are we at this point in time? Unfortunately, I couldn't go to the... Uh, I, I got too short a notice for the meeting on, uh, in relation to during the held during the week and I know that they're going to put a petition forward mm. to the Minister. Today, I think, yes. 15,000 names. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Other, over 15,000 names mm. and fair play to them for getting all those names and, and doing what they're doing. Mm. So, I'm facing into Monday no answers for the councillors and that means no answers for our constituents. Mm. And our TDs don't have any answers either. Okay, we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to speak uh, to the Minister for Justice. Um, very powerful person. Anybody who's a, a government minister is, you know, in the corridors of power. Um, I'm sure that goes without saying, but uh, she, she's a cabinet colleague of Stephen Donnelly uh, who will make the ultimate decision, it seems, on this. We'll be speaking to Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice, on Monday's programme. What should we be asking her? Well, why is he not meeting with people from County Needs? Why are people, why has the terms, why has the review group not been expanded? And we've already written asking for it to be expanded as well. So, is who's in charge? Is Minister Donnelly as Minister in charge or are the HSE in charge of this? And it's it's very clear at this point in time the indications are the HSE are driving the show uh, and they're the people who are determined at this point in time to go ahead with the A&E closure. And we have had no answers. And as Minister, and, and Helen, you know, she's a, a good politician. She has to, on behalf of the people of Mead, tackle um, Minister Donnelly, but she also can tackle as Minister for Justice, um, the HSE, Paul Reid, while he's there, and get the answer that the people of Mead want. Okay, we'll put those points to the Minister on Monday. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Cahirlick of Mead County Council, Nick Killian. That's it for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. 
the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.